All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Pulse Podcast, the podcast of the resident doctors of British Columbia, where we talk about all things related to residency in the beautiful province of BC. My name is Jeff Frost. I'm a fourth-year resident in physiatry, and I'm here today talking with Lynn Lee. Lynn, you're a fourth-year resident in a specialty I hear very little about. Can you please tell us about <laughs> what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So medical microbiology, we're um, a lab-based specialty. And what we do is our, we're responsible for all the results that come from the microbiology uh, lab to our end users, which are which are you guys, the physicians who are seeing patients. Um, so we do bacteriology, virology, our training. We go through um, parasitology as well. And um, an interesting aspect of our job is also infection prevention and control, which is, and all of these elements are quite relevant in, in this last little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So Lynn, just to, just to clarify, because you, you kind of made it sound like you were not a physician there, but you, you guys do go through medical school and CARMS and the whole jazz, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So mm. our, our program, so we are a um, licensed specialty by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada, and we are a lab-based subspecialty. So it's, um, we're part of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology as part of UBC. Awesome. And I think you guys are a five-year specialty, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, yes. Yeah, so there is a direct entry. So there's a five-year direct entry into R R1. And then there are other programs in Canada, a few in Quebec, that also allow entry after a general specialty training in either internal medicine or pediatrics as part of infectious huh. disease. Okay. Yeah, very so cool. So, so, But you are different from infectious diseases, right? Yes, so we work very closely with our infectious disease colleagues, but there are very different aspects of our training. Ours is more focused on the diagnostics and the the lab management gotcha. aspect of things. Mm -hmm. And so all those jokes about radiologists that never see patients, those apply to you guys too? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> maybe. We, we do hear a lot about cool cases through our colleagues, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, it feels like we know patients because sometimes they have very interesting microbes. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Linda, thank you for that education, because I, I think it's fair for me to say that you're in one of the smaller programs that we don't all know the, the most about, even though for sure you guys are one of the backbones of the hospital system, getting us those lab results. So thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. But I was actually hoping to have you on today for an even more important pressing bit of education and that is all about our new friend COVID-19. Yes. So I'm sure you guys are very busy with all the COVID stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, let's just knock some easy ones out of the park. Like what is COVID-19 and why is everyone reasonably concerned about this? Yeah, so COVID-19 is the syndrome for a new SARS-like coronavirus that emerged out of out of China last year. So coronaviruses, they've, they've been around before, as many of you know, with SARS and with MERS in years, in the decades ago. This one is the same family. So coronaviruses are RNA viruses. They have an envelope, which is good. That means that they're easily killed with disinfectants, but they can mutate and they tend to emerge from different animal species 
bats in particular seems to be a hotbed of where their emergence comes from. So this one, we believe that it uh, first came from bats and there was probably an intermediate species uh, that led the way to its eventual problem in humans right now. So, so and the problem with these new emerging viruses is that there's no immunity on a population level. So anybody is susceptible to this new infection. And it's important as well for, for our labs because, because it is new, we have to really be fast and be accurate with things like diagnostics. And all of this is definitely fast-tracked with the current pandemic that we are having. So the, the, the problems we see are, are quite global in scale and it's quite consistent across the world because it's new and everybody is susceptible in the world. Man, you've given us so much there. So let's just dig into some of the key points. So you, you kind of hinted at the idea of spread and how spread, you know, it starts from one individual and then goes to multiple other individuals. One of the reasons this is so dangerous is because no one in the population is immune. So there's no stop on that spread. Or say like Mm -hmm. normally if I have the flu and you and I shake hands, but you're already immune to influenza because maybe, I don't know, you got a flu shot or something. Mm -hmm. Me, Me attempting to spread that to you will result in a failure. So propagation of the virus stops at that interaction. Right. But when a virus is new, it just propagates and propagates and propagates all throughout the population with essentially no check on its spread, right? Exactly. Yes. Okay. So that brings me to my next question because I heard you use the pandemic word. Um, Mm -hmm. How seriously should we be taking this? Uh, I've seen lots of different approaches to it when walking home from work in the park. (laughs) Right. Uh, So what's kind of your take home on that? So I think we should take this seriously and Actually, when the virus emerged in China early in this year, actually in late last year, we sort of, the world was looking and looking closely, but I think there was still a little bit of skepticism in that maybe hope and a false sense of optimism that it won't come to to our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But uh, we now know that this virus it, it does tend to spread. It spreads rapidly, and we can talk about that later, about how fast it does that. But I think we should be taking it seriously. And it's that's reflected in the policies from the government over the last uh, weeks as well with trying to maintain social distance, trying to uh, educate people about hand washing and be vigilant, staying at home if you're sick, avoiding contact with vulnerable people if you're sick and, and all those all those pieces of advice. I think there are different degrees in the public in, People in general, they may have different approaches. And I think sometimes emotion and fear can lead to maybe some extreme behaviors. But all those pieces of advice that the, the public health officials and our government has mentioned so far, trying to maintain a good uh, six feet of distance if you're around other people, hand washing, staying home if you're sick, all those pieces are fundamental to to trying to slow the spread of this of this virus and all that's wonderful advice but i just want to highlight you know ask a question because i'm a resident Mm -hmm. i go to work sick all the time you know the the floors are going to have less people on them as as we progress through this pandemic so if i have like a cough or feel a little febrile should i just go to work like i normally do when i'm sick no so i that's that's a good point like on any normal year when we don't have a pandemic it should be 
hopefully encourage that people, especially healthcare workers, <laughs> don't go to work when they're sick as well to prevent the same thing, spreading the the infection to um, vulnerable populations that you're taking care of. Especially now, uh, there's different policies which are somewhat are mainly similar, but the way that they carry out for healthcare workers, the testing is a little bit different depending on the health authority, but it's even more strongly mandated now that if you're a healthcare worker and you're currently experiencing like those symptoms of fever and cough to, to stop what you're doing at work, um, get <laughs> tested <laughs> and then go home and take care of yourself and, and get better. And, and just to be clear, because I think there is some confusion on that point, it's not so much that you're, it's great that you take care of yourself, and that is important, but what the worst case scenario is, is someone who's mildly ill, 28 years old, has a really meh case of coronavirus, but then goes to work and spreads it to 8 or 10 elderly patients that might be immunocompromised or have many medical comorbidity, comorbidities, right? Like, that's what we really want to stop amongst healthcare workers. Absolutely. Yeah, that is the fear. And, and this thing, it, it does spread very quickly, as we can see in several nursing home outbreaks in, in our local population, as well as other places in the world. And then even, and the hope is that it doesn't get to the, the spread doesn't get to the point where overtired and overwhelmed healthcare workers are actually uh, not able to be cognizant and be like energized enough to take time to take care of themselves. So in China in particular, one of the centers in Wuhan, they had about a 3% of their cases were from actual healthcare workers that mm. I think maybe actually propagated the spread. So it is very important that, mm. um, you know, we take care of ourselves, yes, but it's also to help other people to prevent whatever that respiratory infection may be, it may be coronavirus, it may be something else. Um, but to prevent that from having it in our uh, vulnerable patients. Okay, so that was my PSA for the day. Residents, if you're feeling ill, get tested, go home. But I guess on to the, the next buzzword du jour. Uh, flattening the curve. Break it down yes. for me. <laughs> <laughs> flattening the curve. So, so this gets a little bit theoretical. <laughs> um, but the important point is that this virus... It does spread exponentially. So on average, we think that every one person who gets the coronavirus can pass it on to two or three other people. Mm. This is different from other viruses such as influenza, where on average, one person can spread it to one other person. Mm -hmm. So compared to something like the flu, the COVID-19 can actually be propagated faster. And this was to an, leads to an exponential growth in the number of cases over time. And that accumulates really quickly when you think of numerators and people getting sick. Of course, uh, the information from China may not be generalizable to Canada exactly, but from their data, we know 80% of the people, they're usually okay. They get like mild, moderate symptoms, but they're able to be at home and kind of um, just like work through it and get better on their own. But 20% of people will need hospitalization. And of those, about 3 to 5% of people need critical care. So with this exponential growth over time, our healthcare systems are going to be really pressed and have an influx of these people getting sick 
who need critical care and need hospital beds. So the hope is to actually slow that spread down. So even though, even though eventually maybe 50% of the population will get this virus, but let's just make sure and stagger that 50% over a longer period of time that they'll get sick so that uh, we have enough resources, have enough hospital beds, have enough ventilators to help people through the 3% that do get critically ill through their illness course. Awesome. And to kind of drive that home, that point home, I've heard, you know, one of the even scarier things about COVID is unlike the movie Contagion, which I'm sure we've all rewatched in the last two weeks, (laughs) uh, patients that get COVID-19 actually stay, stay in a critical state for quite some time, like seven days up to 10 days. Uh, and so you can have this overlapping effect where you have many, many people in that 3% that need critical care support, all showing up at the same time, all requiring a ventilator at the same time. And, and yes. that's that's kind of the nightmare scenario, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's some preliminary data that on average, COVID-19 patients, they do get intubated longer compared to other indications for mechanical ventilation. And the other interesting part is that there is a bit of delay when the critical illness onset does occur. So we know that the asymptomatic period, so the incubation period, where you're waiting for symptoms of the disease to happen is, is up to two weeks. On average, it's about seven, six, five to seven days, but it could be as long as two weeks. And then when the symptoms do occur, it's usually a week after that when their dyspnea is so bad, they're so short of breath, and so sick that they do come to the hospital and require potential intubation. So there is a bit of a timeline, a a lag in time when this happens. Right. And so now here in British Columbia, in terms of flattening the curve, can you think of anything off the top of your head that we've done to kind of flatten that curve? Oh, absolutely. So I think Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's been such an outstanding leader and such a good role model, urge for people to socially distance has has definitely played a part in trying to get that curve to, to flatten out. So shutting down uh, bars, salons, staggering people, like 50 people at a time into grocery stores, all of those measures I think are are important to, to eventually get into that flattening. Shutting down schools temporarily, that is also... That is also helpful to that. So kind of just making sure that we're not in high density settings and being able to maybe transmit these, this mild illness in the majority of people to others is, is really important to, to slow this thing down over time. Cool. And I think Dr. Henry just gave an address a day or two ago about the success of our measures. And I know the data is preliminary, but it does seem like the flattening measures are working. Yes. And I say that with hope because I I also know that it does hurt a lot of people. Like when we flatten the curve, you know, when we shut down restaurants, bars, et cetera, et cetera, there's a lot of people who are losing their jobs and that means they're losing their income. And so as hard as it is to lose your income, I do want to kind of underline, at least it's working. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, if we were all losing our incomes and there's no positive benefit, that would be an even harder pill to swallow. But it does seem like the data is supporting efficacy of these pretty difficult measures. 
Yes, absolutely. And again, the the numbers are preliminary. Um, and the other thing I want to mention is that though it looks promising, that doesn't mean that we can kind of take the gas off the pedal. I think the social distancing in the next weeks, it has to continue. And I hope it does and that people are even more encouraged by these numbers to continue doing that. And I know a lot of people must be feeling like a lot of friends of mine, even they're really feeling the the pain of not working at this time. And it's it's hard to stay at home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. hopefully we all get out of this and it is going to save lives. It will. And, right. um, and to continue, I think, doing that for hopefully the greater good of, of the entire community at large. Right. And I guess maybe that's one thing we should really underline here. We're facing this calamitous situation as a community, and we're doing our best to get everyone in the community through it, even though in the short term that, that does mean some pain for many members of the community. Yeah. So... Let's stick with it, team. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Okay, so I guess that's kind of COVID in a nutshell. So I just kind of wanted to geek out on some specific things since you're in, you know, medical microbiology. I've I've seen all these weird memes online where it kind of looks like a tennis ball with all these toilet plungers sticking off of it. Is that what it really (laughs) looks like? Kind of, yeah. On the electron microscopy, which is a very high resolution type of microscopy picture, coronavirus is named because it's it's named like that because it looks like a crown. So mm. all these little spikes on the outer envelope, it looks like a crown. Mm. Um, so that's pretty much what it looks like. It, it looks like very much the same as all the other coronaviruses. Mm. You can't really just tell um, the the SARS-CoV virus apart from like the MERS virus, but right. yeah. <laughs> And and some coronaviruses contribute to the common cold, right? They do, yeah. So there's human coronaviruses, which is specifically adapted well into humans, um, and they cause common cold. They're kind of a little a cousin family subset of mm. this particular coronaviruses or this particular novel coronavirus. But uh, yeah, they do circulate. The human adapted human coronaviruses, they circulate every year. And so SARS, I think, came from a a bat as well. Did MERS come from a bat? Uh, So MERS, we think, came from camels. Um, So so viruses are pretty are pretty adaptable. They have they find their niches in particular species and don't really cause any problems for them. But if they find a new a new host to invade, (laughs) they can yeah invade that host and adapt to them like just like this novel coronavirus has. And so I've also heard this other thing that a successful virus is a virus that has a low mortality rate because that allows it to propagate widely. So I guess like the human coronaviruses. So is it often that when we have a very deadly virus, like a pandemic situation, that it's because a virus has crossed species and hasn't yet kind of softened its edge, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So we know that um, the success, meaning uh, the ability to replicate of a virus, is proportional to how many people or how many uh, other individuals it can it can infect and have those individuals infect other individuals. So mm-hmm. this particular coronavirus, um, it has adapted well to humans. There's some basic science studies that have come out over the last couple of weeks that has actually suggested it binds the this coronavirus, COVID-19 virus, binds with higher affinity 
to the human ACE2 receptor than Ah. SARS virus. So that suggests that it kind of adapted better than SARS to humans for it to continue spreading amongst uh, humans. So so the, the idea, I think, in in a global level, uh, uh, viruses in general for its survival is to not kill the host too quickly so that it doesn't spread the virus to others, but to cause enough damage in the host so that it infects cells and causes inflammatory reaction and possible cytokine storms that can cause quite, quite a big illness for a lot of individuals. Okay, so here's my meta-level question that might seem really simple or absurd. (laughs) No problem. What is the point of a virus? Like, I get, you know, like a bacteria eats other bacteria, or like a shark eats fish, fish eat plankton. Like, there's a clear order to the circle of life here. But (laughs) how do viruses fit into that? Why do they exist? (laughs) Why do they exist? Uh, That's a good question. I think it's they exist because they're quite simple structurally. If you think about it, it's a bit of nucleic acid and some type of protein capsule that may or may not have a lipid envelope. And it's just easy for that to like assemble or to Mm -hmm. have that created in general. But the problem is that it's so simple. It's so um, simplified that it doesn't have machinery on its own Mm -hmm. to replicate itself. So it needs something else to do that for it. So that's when a host comes in so they're kind of like almost parasitic in using Mm -hmm. their host for their machinery to replicate itself and viruses have learned to do that in so many different ways it's really interesting and fascinating but um (laughs) that's a different that's a different topic altogether but um, yeah they've like found very creative different ways to do that to some have an envelope some don't have an envelope some are rna Mm -hmm. viruses some are dna viruses so they kind of found their own niches um, and found their own host to do that and that's essentially why we have so many they're really Mm -hmm. good at replicating and hijacking other cells to make more of itself so i guess just like darwin said it's all about replication yeah a little bit yeah so uh so i guess okay back to the practical then you're in medical microbiology. What kind of PPE do I need to be thinking about when I'm approaching this scary virus? Okay, so the policies have changed a little bit because we are finding that there is more COVID-19 spread in the communities now. I would say um, touch base with your different with each different health authority where you work at because it will be different depending on their supply of PPE and the department you work at, uh, etc. But in general, for if you know someone, if a patient has COVID-19, um, it spreads like a respiratory virus, which means that it is droplet in contact because it's in their respiratory airways, um, which may come out as droplets if they're coughing, and contact because they can act as, they can be on the hands of patients or on their skin or on fulmites, which may be viable, and you want to make sure that you're protected from a contact perspective as well. So so that's number one. If a patient you're seeing um, like in the emergency department not intubated is uh, it has COVID-19, it's droplet and contact. If there is any aerosolizing generating procedures being done, when that procedure is happening, we know that the virus can exist in tiny, tiny particles and be 
suspended in the air for a number of hours. So in those situations, then an N95 respirator that to really protect the transmission and through those tiny airdrops are, are recommended. So what do you make of those like videos coming out of Italy where they're all kind of in spacesuits? Yeah, so I think when it gets to such a cal- calamitous level as Italy and where so many people are coming into their emergency rooms, like 99% of them have COVID-19, it doesn't become practical to, to change um, PPE with every encounter with a patient. So right. that is why they have such like very uh, secure suits to really just make sure that uh, they're protected in the inside of the suits, but that they're still able to kind of effectively deliver care mm-hmm. uh, in a timely manner for all of those people. And what do we call that level of PPE? Do we just call that pandemic level or like things have gone uh, bad level like <laughs> like i'm aware uh, of droplet airborne i got that but what yeah that's a good question i actually i think there's there's probably proper terminology for that but when it's that that level it's just like uh yeah different I, thing yeah. i'm not sure a different thing <laughs> I stumped you. I stumped you. and i should i one thing i want to underline here is today is march the 28th And if there's one thing that I've learned in going through the COVID stuff, at least here in Vancouver for the last month, is that this information changes so rapidly. So I don't know how well this podcast will age if you're listening to this at a later date. I can just think back a month ago, so February 28th, like our world was totally different. I don't think anyone was worried about coronavirus. Do you really remember being worried about coronavirus a month ago? Um. I think, well, from a med micros perspective, it's a little <laughs> bit biased. Fair, fair. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it, it is it is quite astounding how rapidly things have evolved. And it just goes to show that, you know, we can't really take anything for granted in terms of like underestimating the level of pathogenicity of such a an emerging infection like this and how mm. interconnected we are in the world on a right. all around like you know i think it this particular pandemic it really highlights that what's happening in china while it is very far away it doesn't mean we're safe here like all across the ocean or what's happening in italy you know it's we're all in this together on a global level and i think perhaps these are going to be some of the lessons that we uh, have moving forward as we kind of emerge out of this emergency situation. Yeah, I was, I was really shocked to realize that as well. Like, you know, we've all heard of globalization. We know that stuff gets made in China and gets shipped to North America. Cool. Um, But this really drove that home. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was, that's a learning point for sure. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so we talked about PPE. Is there any other like big things about COVID that you guys are aware of in the med micro world that you really just want out there, want us to know about? I think that a few things that we're trying to do in the lab. So the government of Canada has ramped up its spending in terms of response to this pandemic. So there, the testing, although there was some shortages in terms of like the specimen collection kits and all of that before, I think we are working on 
kind of addressing that issue and the limit uh, of the testing to to have it again back on a more broader scale level testing for the population. Some of the other things that I think we'll probably get asked about going forward and which is also something that like I sit at at home in the evenings kind of Googling about is <laughs> the performance of the testing. Yeah. And and that is that is still kind of to be determined. It's still kind of a mystery, especially, I think, because when people come to the hospital, they're still they're in their second week of illness normally when they come in with that uh, critical illness. So the performance of the testing, uh, we're still kind of looking into how it fares in that second week. And there's a lot of like unknowns still to be worked out. But yeah, we're working on those issues. <laughs> okay, and, and one thing I want to take home for everyone at home, if you're listening, if you're a healthcare worker or a vulnerable population, so someone in a hospital, I think the key thing I heard there was, don't worry about a lack of testing. Exactly, yeah. So if you're a healthcare worker, you will pr get priority testing. And if you're a member of the general population, that might not apply. But if you're like a resident or anybody who works in a healthcare setting uh, and you have those symptoms, we test you. And the turnaround time is usually fairly good with, with knowing the results of the test so that to have, you know, comfort in mind as well as to hopefully uh, getting you back to work and things like that. So, yes. And to clarify that, we don't get special, we don't get to, to the front of the line because we're healthcare workers. Uh, we get to the front of the line because if we get infected, we have a chance of infecting the vulnerable patients that we see and causing a spike in mortality that could be totally avoided, right? Exactly. Yes. Cool. And so as a resident, should I feel like ashamed or kind of guilty or whatever if I think I need to get a test? Absolutely not. And this has like even happened within the last month where one of my colleagues had to get tested. And, you know, don't feel like you're letting the team down. Don't feel like, you know, it's kind of a burden to not have you there for however many days. Like, please take care of yourself during mm -hmm. this time. It's really important that, you know, we can't help others if we're, if we're sick, um, especially now when we're just like nosocomial spread of this it would be terrifying <laughs> yeah. so please take care of yourself like for our patients and for your your own health and don't feel bad cool so that's kind of you know that's covid any la last calls for covid comments before i start asking about residency and how that's changed for you Whew. No, I can talk about this forever, but <laughs> we, can, I'm sure. we can move on to other uh, things. So, I, the, uh, you know, we're a podcast about residency for residents. So, I mean, I can't imagine how, how this has changed your life. This has totally upended my life as a rehab resident. And as you can guess, I'm probably like the furthest thing from someone who should be treating a COVID patient. But uh, <laughs> so, like, how, how has this changed your world? So, immediately... It has changed, I think, for for me and for everybody in residency, just in terms of like the rotations coming up, exams. Uh, I don't have to write any exams this year, but I know my um, compatriots in fifth year, they're really they were really stressed about you know their exams, and now that's been delayed for for several months. So there's there's that aspect to it. It's sort of just working around those immediate changes, and I think. For me, I'm still trying to grasp how 
on the long term and going forward into next year, this pandemic will shape my training. But I think it's going to color everything kind of going forward in whatever we do. And I think that's the same for any specialty, just thinking about the infection control uh, implications of something like COVID in rehab or COVID in long-term care or in the clinical setting. I think all of those things are going to have, are going to be addressed in the future when all of this is calmed down somewhat. And then for me, again, it's also kind of deciding in terms of trade-offs I'm seeing how uh, my staff are making some difficult decisions into you know what do we trade off right now for for trying to get this test up and running and there's long hours some of the other testing is a little bit delayed now because we're trying to just get more COVID testing onto machines rather than some of the other other tests we do routinely so for management I think that's going to be really, really interesting to see how it plays out on a day-to-day level for all of the specialties. Yeah. And again, for, for MedMicro, I think it's highlighted, like we do, we kind of get siloed into different rotations every month in terms of what we do. So infection control for one month, MedMicro in the lab for one month, stewardship for one month. But I think with this level of pandemic, it sort of just highlights that everything kind of goes in a circle and affects everything else. So that's sort of what I've noticed with my training so far as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's even the small things, right? Like when I think about how I wash my hands these days, like I take it way more seriously than I ever did before. And Mm -hmm. I I wonder like, am I going to go back to being lazy with hand washing? Like, I don't think so. Like, I I think this is the new me. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think social distancing too, I think that will eventually become the new norm when I think about how we used to round, you know, like in the wards in those tiny little stations and hunched up together. I think that will hopefully change in the future too, like trying to maintain a bit more distance, especially during respiratory virus seasons. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and then maybe hopefully I, I hope that people will be eventually okay and programs will be okay with letting trainees who are sick take time off yeah. and not have that presenteeism mentality when they are sick and just stay home if, if they do have that. So, yeah, I think all of those things will be quite, I hope, is maintained moving forward. Yeah, I had a laugh in my head thinking, you know, when I'm 50 and I'm still washing my hands like it's COVID-19 and there's a whole <laughs> bunch of new medical students or something who never really experienced this. They're going to be looking at me like I'm a crazy old bat. But like <laughs> it all, I guess it's just like your life experiences change the way you practice. And it's, it's a very yeah. interesting time to live through. Totally. Um, definitely. Yeah. So I, I guess, um, what's your day like these days? Like, are you guys just in full on panic mode? Like how, how is med micro handling this? So I think we're handling it. Well, I can't speak for every site, but I think, you know, it's long, long days, long hours, and it's not just us. It's like everybody who works in the lab too. Uh, that all the techs are pulling in extra hours to to try to do more runs per day. We're, I think, our we're on constant communication with public health and with our public health lab as well. And I think one of the strengths of BC is our public health surveillance system and our public health lab. And their testing uh, was very. It was ramped up very early. Like 
really quite in the weeks after we found out about the emerging coronavirus from China. And when the sequence was released, they were really quick in getting the testing up and going. So I think like it's really busy. <laughs> it's really um, it can be challenging, but I think there's a lot of good things that are coming out of it. And I think it's highlighting some of the strengths in our existing system, which hopefully does not get overlooked uh, in the future and possibly other pandemics that may be in the future. So, yeah. yeah. And that, that's one thing that, you know, struck me when I looked you know, I started obviously Wikipediaing pandemics over time. <laughs> and it, it seems like these things happen every 10 years. Like there was H1N1, there was SARS, there was MERS. Uh, I mean, MERS and H1N1 kind of hit around the same time, but it, it seems like every 10 years we get hit by one of these. Is that, does that kind of jive? I mean, of different levels of severity for sure and different levels of spread, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we certainly see emerging diseases all the time. Um, it just depends on how quickly that some of them may, may spread across the globe. So, um, whoa, 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 wait a second. Are you saying this is like Jack Ryan? Like there's, this stuff is happening all the time, but there's like a yes. crack squad of epidemiologists <laughs> shutting it down. <laughs> it... Uh, yeah, basically like that's what surveillance is, right? So you're just like watching and waiting for something new to pop up. And so our capacity to kind of detect that it has been ramped up. Uh -huh. uh, over over the decades, which is probably why we're hearing about these emerging diseases more. Um, but it's super important. Like, it's kind of a trade off. Like, I know, in some ways, when people hear of so many new emerging diseases every year, it might be like the effect of such new diseases might be nulled when you're hearing about them constantly. Yeah. But every so often, there is a very serious deadly disease like this year that. Uh, that it's important to kind of realize and be thankful for that um, surveillance in the background, really trying to to hone in on on new things and hone in on it quickly. Okay, that's I didn't know that. That's neat. I thought you guys just kind of ramped up when things got bad, but you're always watching, and sometimes it just slips through. Yeah, All yeah, right. t totally. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you for your service. I didn't know that was going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really neat. So one the one of the questions I wanted to ask, kind of like qualitative question when i think about you know bad epidemics or pandemics the things that i have in my head as anchors are sars because i grew up in toronto so i lived through sars and then the spanish flu just because of the numbers involved and so where where do you expect this to land between those two anchors so history is written by people who are the writers and who have a perspective on things. I think this is going to be important going forward. I, I think the the level of, of of deadliness of this novel coronavirus is already outpaced SARS, but I think all those different big epidemics that you mentioned, people drew very profound lessons from that, from those epidemics and those pandemics. And I think we are experiencing such profound changes with this current pandemic that it will go down in history books as, I guess, one of the bigger pandemics mm. in modern times as well. It's just because of, of the lessons that we need and are learning from from it. So so that's kind of my, my take on, on this, is that it will go down. 
I, I don't know the magnitude, but it's probably going to be really big. Oh my gosh, I sound like Trump when I said that. It's probably going to be really big. <laughs> I have resisted so many Trump jokes throughout this podcast. I was <laughs> someone finally cracked. <laughs> I know. We well, you know that's. I think that's important to understand because I think in the near future, our lives as residents are going to change even more than they have. Like, I don't know if I'll be doing physiatry in a month. And I think it's helpful to put that perspective on it, that this might be like a moment in history, you know, something that gets written about in history books for a long time. And so we might need to expect significant upheavals in our own lives, our own education, our own trajectory because of this. And I think that's already happened to many people, you know, like the, like we were talking about the servers at the bar and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure their lives have been hugely disrupted, like way more so than mine as a resident. And I guess it's just just something to think about. Like your life will continue to be disrupted and, and as anxiety provoking as that is and as a, you know annoying as that can be, it's because we're living through something huge. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. It's a good way to put it. And I think one of the comforts it's to the anxiety is that we're kind of all in this together. And mm -hmm. to be kind to one another, to not kind of blame or accuse people if they're not exhibiting behaviors that we we think are are totally necessary but to really educate people and to be mindful of ourselves as well during anxiety like just the way that our our hands may be touching our faces or things like that just yeah. <laughs> just sometimes slowing down and being mindful and being kind to one another and realizing we're all in this together is very grounding. Well, Lynn, that is an incredibly positive statement. I like to end on positive statements. Is there anything else you want to bring up about our, our new friend COVID-19? No, it's just <laughs> complete upheaval so far, but um, hopefully we'll learn more about it. And as we learn more about it, we can find new ways to tackle it. So yeah, I, I don't have anything to, to add anymore <laughs> at this point. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciated it. We started very focused and had good questions about Corona, and then we kind of meandered into some really interesting side topics. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, hope, I hope people got value out of that. But yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye for now, everyone.